anybody have has heart disease it's not because of your genes it's not because of your stress it's the food and the food the key is this if you never injure your endothelial cells you'll have plenty of nitric oxide you're not going to have heart disease but the exciting thing is if you do have heart disease if you stop ever injuring the endothelial cell again you'll get a little bit more from that because remember what i've just taught you was an alternate an alternate pathway that has been discovered in the last 10 or 15 years of how the body can make more nitric oxide because what happens just because of age alone the endothelial production of nitric oxide by the time you're 50 years of age beautifully healthy you've only got 50 percent of the nitric oxide <clears throat> you had when you were 25. by the time you're over 80 you've lost over 73 percent of your nitric oxide from your endothelial cells so what we've got now is this other beautiful mechanism to the green leafy vegetables to make additional nitric oxide because that is what's going to protect you because and this but sadly the thing that is so frustrating about present cardiovascular medicine is the poor cardiologists they never get any training in nutrition in medical school or in their postgraduate training so really none of the drugs none of the pills none of the scents none of the bypass surgery or operations have one single solitary thing to do with the causation of the illness but the exciting thing is we now know that not only can we halt the disease but we can reverse it Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and on today's show, I am very honored and so pleased and thrilled to have Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr., MD, on our show. Now, Dr. Caldwell, for a lot of people in my, who I hang with, needs no uh, introduction whatsoever because Dr. Eselston is a legend in the world of using food as medicine to reverse chronic degenerative disease. But for the listeners out there who are just tapping into the world of food as medicine and tapping into the world of knowing that you don't have to live with your diagnosis and the prognosis of your disease if you just turn your head to the left, the right, behind, and actually look to the foods that you are eating, the foods that you put into your body, and know that they have the power to support your body in activating your body's ability to heal itself of even the most advanced chronic degenerative diseases. Now, Dr. Eselstyn Jr.'s work is really centered around heart disease, even though he was a breast cancer surgeon. He worked with women who had breast cancer and men who had breast cancer. We have to, we cannot forget that men are also affected and afflicted by this disease. But Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn Jr., he first was in the world of breast cancer and understood that doing these mass surgeries, mastectomies, lumpectomies, did nothing to actually treat 
the disease itself. And then that's when he launched into the world of looking as food as medicine to reverse heart disease, because he also saw in his patients who had heart disease that it didn't matter what medications and stents and surgeries they underwent, it was also not treating the disease. So what he ended up doing was engaging in a long longitudinal study where his patients turned to food as medicine and lo and behold, what he saw was miraculous results. Not miraculous, but just nature's principles results showing us that food is medicine and it has the power to reverse even the most advanced chronic diseases like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and so on. So you are going to hear it right from Dr. Eselston Jr.'s mouth, his words, his mind, where he does not hold back. He just really says it as it is that in the world of chronic disease, the one thing that is going to ultimately reverse it, treat it, is actually food. And he explains the two key words you need to keep at the forefront of your mind every single day so that you are always working in service of keeping, keeping those two words, those two principles, those two mechanisms in your body completely healed so that you can live a life that is long and free of disease. Now, a little bit about Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn Jr.'s background is that he did receive his BA from Yale University. So he received accolades from there. And he is an MD, received his medical degree from Western Reserve University. And he has been doing this work since um, 19, I wanna say 1956. Um, he was awarded a gold medal at the Olympic Games. So he's an athlete as well. He's also a trained surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic and St. George's Hospital. Uh, he was an army surgeon in Vietnam where he was awarded a bronze star. I know that that is a huge recognition. And Dr. Eselston Jr. has also been associated with the famous Cleveland Clinic since 1968. So he has watched, you know, he has gone through the decades of seeing how medicine is taught in university to medical students. He knows how the battle between how nutrition has been brought, um, the quality of nutrition, education and curriculum that has been brought into the medical schools but is actually non-existent. He understands the policies at work with the pharmaceutical industry and the food lobbies. I mean, to be able to sit with Dr. Eselston Jr. for an hour and a half like we did is really an incredible treat because we're not even just looking at the science of food as medicine, we're looking at the pollocks and the history around food as medicine as well. And it takes somebody of his um, quality of education, his experience, but also his age to be able to put the puzzle pieces together to know that this is a systemic issue. And so it is really such a journey to sit with him today. And folks, you know what to do. This is probably one of the most important podcasts that we have ever done. Um, I got to interview Chef AJ. That podcast is coming up. I got to interview Dr. T. Colin Campbell, and that podcast was so important about understanding the relationship between protein, cancer, food as medicine. I have um, been able to interview so many incredible guests, but I definitely have to say, 
this podcast with Dr. Ezelstein Jr. today, um, the podcast with Dr. T. Colin Campbell. These are the podcasts you really need to listen to. Listen to them three times, four times, five times over, and then you also need to share it with five people, 10 people, 15 people, everybody that you know, so that they understand that we're never going to come to finding a cure for any of these chronic diseases using drugs at all, drugs alone. What we have to do is we have to educate people so they understand the power of using food as medicine. That is the only way we are going to get a handle on this chronic disease epidemic that is amongst us. It'll also help us to get a handle on this COVID pandemic that is upon us also, because as you know, you know the truth behind it. The people that are truly sick and dying of COVID are the ones that also have chronic heart disease, chronic diabetes, chronic respiratory problems. And the only way to reverse those chronic conditions is to turning to food as medicine, managing that biggest stressor that is on our body today. And once we manage that biggest stressor, then our body can actually be resilient to handle all the other stressors that are always going to be around us and upon us and in us on any given minute, like COVID, for example, or any other potential virus or bacteria or fungi or mold or anything that is out there. So I can't stress the importance of just listening to this podcast, taking in the information, doing some research and sharing the info that Dr. Caldwell Esiston Jr. provides today. Share it with everybody that you know. Now, before we dive into the show, of course, I need to remind you, if you listen to our show every week, you know that I am training right now to run and cycle across Canada. It is our biggest campaign that we've ever put together to date, and I am going to be running and cycling 7,120 kilometers from the west coast of North America all the way to the east coast of North America, and I'm going to be doing this in 75 days. What I've learned since putting this crazy, big, hairy, audacious goal out there and starting to train for it is I kind of thought lots of people do this stuff. Um, I was very naive. And I think sometimes for you to be able to do something in this world, whether it's start a business or put a new product into the world or have kids or um, venture into a new diet and lifestyle like food is medicine, you kind of have to be naive about it. Um, and I was naive. I just thought, Everybody had done this, but what I've discovered to date is that actually there's really only a handful of people, especially women that have done this, that are in my age group, so I'm 45, and that have done it entirely on a plant-based whole foods, unrefined foods diet, and that is what I'm going to be doing. My key um, goal is to do this injury-free and to do this where my body is fueled every day so that I don't bonk and so that I also am fueled so well with the micronutrients and the macronutrients of my diet, my lifestyle as I'm eating the food that it's going to fuel me to also get me across Canada, but also to regenerate my body every single day. So you can follow my training program. I've hired one of the best coaches in the world, Chris Hout, who's been training athletes, endurance athletes for 35 years. I think 35 years. The guy's so young that it's hard to believe. But 
He's been doing this for 35 years. He's a two-time Olympic medalist. Uh, he's an endurance athlete in many different um, categories of endurance sport. And you can follow the training that he gives to me. I pay him for it, but I'm sharing it with you. We have athletes now. So everyday average folks who are now endurance athletes because they've been following the training program. So if you're somebody who's like, I can't get out there to walk even a kilometer or a mile, I can't get out there to run a kilometer a mile, bike a kilometer a mile, dance for half an hour. It doesn't matter what the activity is that inspires you to move your body, but um, get into our 22 million strong training tribe and our Facebook group. It's free. You can join us. I provide you with the training, but I also provide you with the nutrition program that I am following. I have consulted with many nutritionists. I desired to, decided to hire Lucky Saguani from Fit Vegan to, so that he is also he is an endurance athlete and he is using all of his knowledge with his team to be able to support me and hundreds of other athletes that he works with. So I also provide you with my meal plans. So get in there, get access to that free information and resources because I want you to be the best version of yourself. And that means eating well, but also moving your body mindfully as well. We need to move our bodies every single day. If you don't want to bike and run, then you need to be out there building fences. You need to be out there mowing your lawn, vacuuming your house. You need to be out there doing something. Stop paying people to do that movement for you. You need to be doing it yourself. But ultimately, I'd love to see you get out there and run. And if you want to join me on this tour, you can also start training today. You still have time to be able to run, learn how to run um, 10K, 15K, a half marathon, a marathon, so that you can join me on this tour, even if it's just for joining me for 10 minutes, 10 hours, 10 days, or for the entire tour, I invite you to come with me because we can change the world together as we stop in different communities across Canada to help Indigenous communities, physicians, groups, and youth remember that food is medicine. Okay, so thanks for being with us. Let's dive into this podcast with Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr., my hero, a truly a mentor in so many ways, and somebody with such an important message. See you at the end of this podcast, everyone. Okay, welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and on today's show, we have Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr., on our show, and it is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Nicolette. So, yeah, really a pleasure because like I said, I've been following your work for years and years. I've read a lot of the research that has come through your family. Um, I love the work that your son is doing. I love the work that um, you've done. And it is such important, important work. But I'd like to take people back to how you first got into doing this work, because I think that journey um, is inspiring to a lot of medical students who listen to our show, to a lot of people who are thinking about what to do with their career as well. So I just want to highlight that for our guests. So how, what was it that brought you into doing this work that you've done around heart medicine, um, chronic disease care, plant-based eating, and so on? Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting that when I finished my uh, residency at the Cleveland Clinic in 1966, I was obligated then for two years of service in the army. My first year I was at 
general surgeon at uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And the second year I was a combat surgeon in, in Vietnam. And uh, when I returned from Vietnam, I was offered a position in the Department of General Surgery at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, where I started in 1969. And it was, a, I guess, about 10 years after that, in about 1979, uh, 1980, I uh, was then chairman of our breast cancer task force. And I was finding myself becoming increasingly disillusioned uh, with the fact that for no matter how many women I was doing breast surgery, I was doing absolutely nothing for the next unsuspecting victim. And this led to a bit of global research on my part, and it was quite striking to see if there were um, cultures like Kenya where breast cancer rates were 40 and 35, 40 times less frequent than the United States. And by, if you looked at uh, the women in uh, rural Japan in the 1950s, breast cancer was very infrequently identified. And yet as soon as the Japanese women would migrate to the United States by the second and third generation, they now had the same uh, rate of breast cancer as their Caucasian counterpart. And perhaps even more powerful was when we looked at Japan, and the men in 1958, in the entire nation of Japan, how many cases of prostate cancer were they autopsy identified? In the entire nation, 18. The most mind-boggling public health figure I've ever encountered. And yet, 20 years later in 1978, there were now 137 uh, cases identified, which still pales in comparison to the 28,000 who will die from prostate cancer this year in this country. Well, it was along about this time that I began to notice that there were multiple cultures where cardiovascular disease was virtually non-existent. And it just seemed to me there would be so much more bang for the buck if we could look at cardiovascular disease, the leading killer of women and men in Western civilization. Because if we, could, if we could show people how to eat to save themselves from heart disease, they would most likely markedly diminish the likelihood of having the common Western cancers of breast, prostate, colon, and perhaps pancreatic cancer. So that was sort of the... Uh, <clears throat> the background and, uh, but you just can't make a global research and look at these uh, observations and, and say that people ought to change the way they're eating. You've got to do some research. And so that's when I, uh, in 1985, with the uh, help of uh, the Department of Cardiology, I had 24 patients, uh, all of whom had significant severe triple vessel coronary artery disease. And I was going to get, try to get them to eat uh, plant-based. And now my fear was that, that how would I really get these people to be compliant? Because changing to plant-based nutrition is a very significant transition 
some would call the diet strict, severe, extreme, but it, it's really not. All you're doing is you're taking away the foods that are going to injure. And we'll get to that maybe subsequently. But now, how was I going to tackle this problem of recidivism? That is, people not sticking with the diet. And uh, I decided to use the same mantra for these patients that I was using for my patients who actually had uh, breast cancer. And this was something that I had learned years ago from a wonderful West Coast surgeon by the name of Bert Dunphy. And Bert used to say that patients with cancer are not afraid to suffer. Mm -hmm. Patients with cancer are not afraid to die. But patients with cancer are being afraid of being abandoned by their family or by their physician. So I, for the first five years, I saw every one of these patients in the office. Every two weeks, we did their cholesterol, their blood pressure, their weight, and I looked up every morsel uh, they ate. And by the end of five years, I was a little bit more courageous and I stretched it out to once a month. And that continued until the 10th year. And by the 10 years, they were now pretty well on autopilot. So I was able to extend it to a quarterly. And then at 12 years, um, we wrote up the results of these uh, patients. Uh, and it was really quite exciting to think that this was one of the longest, if not the longest, a 12 year, 12 years is almost half a career. It is. And uh, yet uh, it was really quite exciting to see what happened to these people. And uh, what was interesting was of the, eight, <clears throat> of the 18 who stuck with us, uh, there were six from the original 24 that I released <clears throat> from the study within the first month because I knew that they uh, just didn't uh, have an interest. They weren't sticking with it. And I, I had no money for this study. But I was very interested at the end of 12 years, when I looked back and looked at those 18 patients during the eight years prior to their coming into our study, while they were in the hands of expert cardiologists, they had 49 episodes among those 18 of disease is progression, heart attack, stroke, need for hospitalization, worse chest pain, worse than an angiogram. But once those 18 uh, came into our study for the next 12 years, 17 of those 18 had no further events. But uh, there was one little sheep who, who at the end of uh, six years wandered from the flock, got into the French fries, the glazed donuts, hamburgers and vagina ended up with a bypass, but proves the point that I was trying to make today. So that was uh, how it all uh, got going and got, we got started, we got those results. And then I uh, put together a national conference on the elimination and prevention of uh, coronary artery disease in Tucson in 1991 with a blue ribbon faculty and uh, and I got excited enough to do, to do it once more in 1997. This time down at Disney, we had 500 uh, attendees and a, a blue ribbon faculty and it was really exciting. And what has happened here over the last eight or 10 years is that 
the whole concept of plant-based nutrition has caught on enough so that there are now numerous national conferences. Uh, they were in person until the COVID uh, virus came along. But with that, now we've, uh, that pretty much are being done virtually. So that, I love this story because I think there's so many angles that we can talk about. And one really important piece theme that comes out of it is the fact that A, you didn't have, you know, you said you didn't really have a lot of money to do this study. So as a physician who, you know, is coming out and saying, I want to do this plant-based study um, on coronary heart disease and, you know, a longitudinal study, like, did you apply for grants? Did you, how did you rally your peers to do this? Or did you just do this on your own? Because I think for a lot of doctors right now, not, I, I have this feeling that not a lot of doctors are that daring to just go out there and really trailblaze and do something like you did. Yeah, uh, well, there, there weren't many colleagues who had any interest in this at all, mm. so I had to uh, solo, and uh, uh, since I was seeing the patients at the clinic, uh, the, uh, uh, and they were, they were patients to the clinic, the cost, uh, their insurance were carrying, you know, the cost of, of when we would run these tests and so forth. Uh, and uh, it was really, really exciting to to get to know these people so well, and yet to see their uh, their symptoms begin to disappear. And then when the the day came when we finally did their uh, angiograms to see that we were having a reversal, it was really exciting. Perhaps the first uh, the first inkling that we were onto something was in 1986. We'd, and the study had been going on by about 15 months. And then one of the earlier patients who came to see me was somebody who had a partially blocked artery in his thigh, so much so that as he walked across the skyway to my office, he had to stop five times because of the claudication. Uh, that is the cramping in, in his right calf muscle because of a lack of blood supply. He would stop, it would fill up, he'd go a few little ways further. Well, I was so focused on his heart, I forgot all about his leg. And after he'd been with us 10 months, he said, Dr. Esselstyn, do you recall when I first started seeing you, I had to stop five times crossing the skyway to your office? Yeah. He said, you know, the last month, it got to be less and less, and I'm, I don't stop at all. The, the pain is, is gone. So we had done, at baseline, when we first saw him, we had done, fortunately, around his right ankle, there was a thing called pulse volume, which measures the strength of the pulse. So we repeated that at 10 months after it, on the program. And it was now doubled, doubled. So we had not only had been able to get rid of all of his symptoms with his leg, but we had absolute documentation that there was disease reversal. And that some people are gonna say, well, wait a minute, what about the statin drugs? Well, <laughs> wait a minute, in 1986, there were no statin drugs. Exactly. We had absolutely irrefutable rock solid proof that food and food alone could reverse cardiovascular disease. So this is, an, I mean, it is an incredible story. And I wonder now in this day and age, 
like, have you, do you feel like we've come a long way since then? I mean, we definitely have more plant-based doctors in the United States. In Canada, I think the group of plant-based doctors is increasing, but I have yet to meet um, many that are, you know, as forward thinking as yourself to, for example, document their patients, um, you know, uh, cases in which we need just, I just feel we need more and more of that happening. And so, you know, considering that you were doing this, you know, quite a while ago, you know, have we really advanced since then or? <laughs> it's light, well, we've got a huge ways to go, but it's light years different now than it was. I went, when I started in 1985, I was the only other person that I know of was doing this was uh, Dean Ornish. Right. And it was really uh, quite exciting just to see in this last year, there was a group like the Plantrition uh, group, which has about well over, well, well over a thousand members. The American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which John Kelly started uh, early in this century, and that, that's now up to 5,000 uh, physicians who are interested now doesn't mean that they're all yet really practicing hardcore plant-based nutrition, yeah. but at least that's opened the window. And every year at the national conference, there's more studies, more outpouring of information and uh, really an opportunity for these people to really get their arms around the uh, amazing power of, uh, of plant-based nutrition, because I think we're, uh, I think if you want me to share with your audience the mechanism of how that disease can reverse, I'd be happy to take a moment and do that. Yeah, and I'd love for you to do that because, and you brought up a really good point, that yeah. even though we have all of these plant-based physicians, and I've been to those conferences, the Lifestyle Medicine Conference uh, that happened in California in 2018, I attended the, uh, the PCRM, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine Conference that was in Washington a couple of years ago. And I was in these rooms with you know, a thousand physicians and as an audience member, and I'm just a PhD student, so I'm sitting amongst all these physicians, but I was so perplexed by the questions that the humbling, the mumblings that were happening. Well, you know, individuals like yourself and Dr. T. Colin Campbell and Dean Ornish and, you know, Dr. Michael Greger and Neil Bernard and Joel Furman and all of these doctors are up there presenting data that I mean I've been researching for years it's not it's not brand new research and these physicians in the audience were saying things like is that really possible I don't yeah. like you know they really were and but then the second conversation that kept coming up was well how do I do this I can't do this with my patients like you know I could get you know, I don't want to present this to a patient and then they get upset because I'm recommending nutrition or they're worried about their license. And, and so I really realized that that was a potential gap. It's how do the doctors practice this with their patients? Yeah, the only, the only way you can do that is just overwhelm, overwhelm them with data or especially in the way of heart disease. You see, there's, there's uh, the studies in heart disease are getting to the point um, for instance, there was a study from the uh, American Heart, Associate, Heart Association in November uh, of 2019 in Philadelphia. And the title of it was ischemia. 
Ischemia is a nice medical word for somebody who has heart disease where they, a portion of the heart muscle is simply not receiving its due supply of oxygen and nutrient. And they had 5,000 people in the study and there were three groups, optimal medical therapy with stents, second group, optimal medical therapy with bypass surgery, third group, optimal medical therapy alone. All right, the end of five years between the three groups, no difference. Exactly. But my objection to the study is though, uh, as, as we get into this discussion today, uh, they're nowhere, they're optimal medical therapy. It was just a bunch of drugs. Yeah. And that was, I mean, there was a token idea about diet, exercise, sleep, but truly, uh, optimal medical therapy, you've got to eliminate all the foods that are going to injure the so, delicate most lining of the artery called the endothelium because where all experts would agree that where this disease, heart disease, has its inception, its onset, its beginning, is when we progressively injure the life jacket and the guardian of our blood vessels, which happens to be that delicate innermost lining of the artery called the endothelium. And the endothelium manufactures a truly magic molecule of gas, nitric oxide. And it is nitric oxide that is responsible for the salvation and the protection of all of our blood vessels because of the remarkable functions that nitric oxide has. For example, Nitric oxide will keep all the cellular elements within our bloodstream flowing smoothly like Teflon rather than Velcro. It keeps things from getting sticky. Number two, nitric oxide is the greatest blood vessel dilator in the body. When you climb stairs, the arteries to your heart, the arteries to your legs, they widen, they dilate. That's nitric oxide. Number three, nitric oxide will protect the wall of the artery from becoming thick and stiff or inflamed, protect us from getting high blood pressure or hypertension. Number four. Now, number four is the absolute key. A safe and normal amount of nitric oxide will protect, will protect us all from ever having blockages or plaques. So literally, everybody on the planet Earth who has cardiovascular disease has their disease because in the previous decades, they have so sufficiently trashed, injured, compromised, and turned their endothelial system into a train wreck they simply no longer have enough nitric oxide to protect themselves from making blockages or plaque. So the good news is this, this is not a malignancy. This is a benign foodborne illness. And once you can get patients to understand that never, never, never again are they to pass through their lips a single morsel that is going to further injure an already train wrecked endothelium because then the endothelium will recover, make enough nitric oxide so we can stop disease progression. And we often see significant elements of disease reversal. And in a way, I'm sort of sorry today, I don't have my slides on your program or what have you, because it would be quite exciting to see some of those reversals, but nevertheless, what are the foods that every time they pass your lips, you injure? The endothelium. <clears throat> that was the question I was just about to ask you. Because we need to one, tell people. Any drop of oil. 
Which olive, olive oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, coconut oil, palm oil, oil in a cracker, oil in a piece of bread, oil in a salad dressing. Oil injures the endothelial production of nitric oxide. And also, anything with a mother or a face, meat, fish, chicken, fowl, turkey, and eggs, and anything that is dairy, milk, cream, butter, cheese, ice cream, and yogurt, and sugary drinks, Diet Coas, Pepsi, and Coke. I don't like sugary foods, cakes, pies, cookies, stevia, agave, excesses of maple syrup, molasses, and honey. And for my heart patients, I don't want them to have nuts, peanut butter, nut butters, cashew sauce, or avocado. Finally, no coffee with caffeine. Decaf, yes. Coffee with caffeine, no. Now, what are you going to eat? You're going to eat all these marvelous whole grains for your cereal, bread, pasta, rolls, and bagels. 101 different types of legumes, lentils, and beans. All these marvelous red, yellow, and green leafy vegetables and white potatoes, sweet potatoes, and some fruit. And there are hundreds of recipes in the multiple books that uh, we have and uh, others like Neil Barnard and John McDougall and so forth. Now, there is one thing that we just introduced in the last nine, about last nine years. It's not in the book because it came after that. And that is that if you can have someone imagine shrinking their head, <clears throat> to a size that it could crawl inside the artery. They would see that the blockage is an absolute cauldron of oxidative inflammation. Mm -hmm. So we need antioxidants, but no. Do not go down to the health food store and buy a jug of pills that says antioxidant because it doesn't work and it's going to be harmful. I need you to get your, your, your antioxidants from food, all right? What food? Food that is high in what we call ORAC value, O-R-A-C, oxygen radical absorptive capacity. So if you're having raspberries, blueberries, strawberries, and blackberries on your morning oh, cereal, <clears throat> that's a terrific start. However, nothing is going to trump the antioxidant value of green leafy vegetables. Mm -hmm. So I need you to chew, not smoothies, not juicing, I need you to chew a green leafy vegetable six times a day, roughly the size of half of your fist, after it has first been boiled in water five and a half to six minutes so, or steamed so it's nice and tender. Then you must anoint it with several drops of a delightful balsamic or rice vinegar because it has been shown by research that the acetic acid in those vinegars will restore the nitric oxide synthase enzyme contained within the endothelial cell that is responsible for making nitric oxide. So you're going to chew this alongside your breakfast cereal, again as a mid-morning snack, again with your luncheon sandwich, that's three, mid-afternoon four, dinner time five, and I adore it when you have that evening snack of kale. Now, uh, 
So I just have to jump in because there's, you have shared so much incredible information that literally what you just shared in this last 10 minutes it can, will save millions of lives around the world. If they just take this 10-minute segment and just do exactly what you said, we will see the arrest and even the reversal of heart disease, diabetes, um, so many diseases, actually. But mm -hmm. I do have to ask you. I just have to finish this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my train of thought. Okay. The second benefit from chewing the greens is that it restores the endothelial progenitor cells from your bone marrow. And those endothelial progenitor cells will replace our worn out, senescent, injured endothelial cells. Now, the most important of all, number three, the third benefit from chewing the green leafy vegetables. When you're chewing the green leafy vegetable, you're chewing a green nitrate. That green nitrate is going to mix with the facultative anaerobic bacteria that reside in the crypts and grooves of your tongue. Those bacteria will reduce the nitrate to a nitrite. When you swallow the nitrite, it is your own gastric acid, which will reduce the nitrite to more nitric oxide to enter your nitric oxide pool. So think about it, what you're doing. All day long, with no added, significant added expense, no horrible side effect, all day long, when you do this six times a day, you are restoring nitric oxide, the very molecule, the deficiency of which has given you this disease in the first place. Now, there are some caveats here. No toothpaste with fluoride. No public drinking with water with fluoride or mouthwash, because all those will injure the beneficial bacteria in your mouth and avoid antacids because antacids will reduce your stomach acidity to the level where it cannot reduce the nitrite to more nitric oxide. Now you're probably wondering what are the vegetables that I'm talking about? They are, ready? Bok choy, Swiss chard, kale, collards, collard, beet greens, mustard greens, turnip greens, napa cabbage, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, cilantro, parsley, spinach, and arugula, and asparagus, and the top five are kale, Swiss chard, spinach, arugula, beet greens, and beets. You've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> well, you asked for it. You know what? I love it. What we're going to do for our audience, because this is such good information, and I know when people are listening to podcasts or watching the video, we're going to put this all into one simple document that you can just download. But we're also going to put all the links to... Um, Dr. Esselstyn's books because um, all of this is in there. Plus we'll have lots of recipes. You'll get all the recipes from his book. So everybody needs to have these books on your coffee table, in your kitchen, um, at work, you know, give them out to friends. Let's reduce it to its simplest form in one sentence if I can. Okay, let's do it. Your audience should know that the only reason that the, anybody have, has heart disease is not because of your genes, it's not because of your stress, it's the food. And the food, the key is this, if you never injure your endothelial cells, you'll have plenty of nitric oxide, you're not gonna have heart disease. But the exciting thing is if you do have heart disease, if you stop ever injuring the endothelial cell again, you'll get a little bit more from that. Because remember, 
What I've just taught you was an alternate, an alternate pathway that has been discovered in the last 10 or 15 years of how the body can make more nitric oxide. Because what happens, just because of age alone, the endothelial production of nitric oxide, by the time you're 50 years of age, beautifully healthy, you've only got 50% of the nitric oxide <clears throat> you had when you were 25. By the time you're over 80, you've lost over 73% of your nitric oxide from your endothelial cells. So what we've got now is this other beautiful mechanism to the green leafy vegetables to make additional nitric oxide, because that is what's going to pr protect you. Because and this... right now, sadly, the thing that is so frustrating about present cardiovascular medicine is the poor cardiologists, they never get any training in nutrition in medical school or in their postgraduate training. So really, none of the drugs, none of the pills, none of the stents, none of the bypass surgery or operations have one single solitary thing to do with the causation of the illness. But the exciting thing is, we now know that not only can we halt the disease, but we can reverse it. Exactly, and we have known this for a long time. For me, this is a frustrating thing, is that the science has actually been there, making the rationale for these leafy greens, for you know how to repair the endothelial cells, and this is available to physicians everywhere. Are any university students that has access to their university's library where can, they can access the full studies? I know it's hard for you know other people who maybe use Google as their research mechanism, but you can use Google Scholar and actually access a lot of open source journals. So for me, I get so frazzled by the fact that um, you know it's it's just not. It, we haven't advanced as much as I wish we had over the last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years well, that we've I, known of this. In Canada, I think their most recent food plate, they got rid of dairy. Yeah, yeah. And we played a part in consulting with local government or with the federal government and Health Canada on that. And that was huge. But at the same time, you know, there's a couple questions I want to, you know, talk to you about because the how people interpret that though is where the, they weren't as clear on that to say you know these foods have to be really truly whole foods and a lot of people i'm sure are listening to you saying nitric oxide and they're like well oh i can go to the local pharmacy or health food store and just pick up a bottle of pills and we know that that does not do the same thing and you know and even at these conferences you see that um, health conferences, nutrition conferences, everybody's still serving up a platter of supplements versus getting people to go to their garden or go to the local farmer's market or grocery store and get the greens in their whole form. And then, like you said, steam them, cook them a little bit, and then, you know, mix them with uh, balsamic vinegar, or you said rice vinegar. Can you use also apple cider vinegar? The research was done with either uh, <clears throat> rice or balsamic. I don't know whether, therefore I'm hesitant mm. to put apple cider because I don't know that <clears throat> the research has been done with that, no. Okay, so so with the, let's say with the balsamic vinegar and the rice vinegar, because that is what the research says. And I love evidence-based medicine. I'm like, I'm you know good to use that if it's a well-designed study. So 
Um, so the other question that I have then is about the supplements. Do the supplements work as well, especially when we're talking about, you know, no, no, nitric oxide? No, the only supplement that I have <clears throat> for my patients is B12. Right. And B12, even for people who are not on a plant-based diet, they still need to supplement with B12. Uh, I don't seem to see patients uh, who are not on a plant-based diet. Oh, okay. <laughs> I love that answer. That is beautiful because it really means you are the go-to physician uh, for heart disease and other illnesses as well. The, the people have said that I can be a bit of a taskmaster. I do it because I, I hate failure. And, uh, but I've also been told that I'm not as mean as I look. <laughs> right now, I'm going to vouch for the fact that I don't think you're as mean as, and you don't even look mean. What are they talking about? Oh, so, oh. so another question that I have to, uh, I do have to ask as well is, um, and if I can get you to talk a little bit more about it, is this piece just about elimination diets and scarcity that people often do feel that they are being restricted when they enter this. And I just want you to really emphasize that that is not the case when it comes to, you know, consuming a plant-based diet. Oh, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I think it's, it's so much easier for patients to understand this. And I should, <clears throat> I should share with you that with our, with our uh, monthly program that I conduct, when we uh, looked up some 200 patients several years ago, and the adherence rate uh, was uh, close to 90%, 89.3, uh, close to four years. And uh, how, do, how do we get that degree of uh, compliance? Because most physicians say, my God, I wouldn't know how to do this. I wouldn't know how to begin to talk to these patients. Or I said, I tried it. And, and for 12 or 15 minute offices, it, well, that isn't gonna work. If you're gonna have a lifestyle change, you've gotta show a patient respect. The only way to show a patient respect, if you wanted to make a lifestyle change, is give them your time. Two things we do, I think, that are key there. The actual seminar, which I conduct once a month, usually for somewhere between 18 or 20 patients, is a really usually about five and a half hours to six hours long. In that five and a half hours, they're going to get a lot of information. They're going to get a very expensive handout. They're going to get a copy of the entire presentation that we filmed from an earlier one. And every one of those patients, before they ever come to the seminar, my secretary gives me a list of their names and their phone number two weeks beforehand. And then it's my job to go ahead and I have to call every one of them personally so that I can get my arms around their story and at the same time provide provide them uh, you know, with an opportunity to ask questions of me. So that coming to the seminar, we now have a strong platform from which we can all move forward. And at the seminar, I spend at least an hour, hour and a half almost on the endothelial cell and nitric oxide. Because when, you, when they, there's, there's gotta be, anybody with a brain in their head, by the time we're through with that explanation knows if they're sitting there having had their heart attack because they have destroyed their endothelial production of nitric oxide. And the reason why I think we run a pretty high rate of 90% adherence 
Can you imagine somebody that they're listening to me about endothelial cells and nitric oxide? Dare to come up to me, if they got a brain in their head, would they ever come up to me afterwards and said, Dr. Esselstyn, that was certainly very interesting, but Lois and I are gonna celebrate our 35th wedding anniversary in two weeks, and boy, am I gonna destroy my last few remaining endothelial cells. What? Now, there is a challenge when people go to a restaurant, but you can get around that. Going to a restaurant is not an excuse for destroying more endothelial cells. First thing you do at a restaurant, the waiter comes up. Remember, all those menus are filled with oil. Mm -hmm. You tell the waiter or the waitress, understand this, I am deathly allergic to a drop of any oil. Woohoo! And I cannot have any animal protein, dairy, or sugar. So they look through the menu, there's nothing. You say politely, I'd like to speak with the chef. Chef comes out, you explain, can't have a drop of oil, animal protein, dairy, or sugar. Comes back 23 minutes later, beautiful plate of beans and rice, or it might be a baked potato with a vegetable. But the point that I'm trying to say is, don't ever dream of giving me an excuse of there was nothing there. What do you think would happen if you missed a meal? Your endothelial, your endothelial cells rejoice. See, it's, yeah. it's doable. So when somebody dares to say it's, it's strict, severe, or extreme, go to the, see the movie The Game Changers. You'll That's see incredible physiques on people who are bodybuilders and the strongest man in the world. Guess what? Whole food, plant-based nutrition. Yeah, that must have been exciting when that documentary came out as the well. Most, the most ex exciting things that we've learned about food in the last year or two, how important it is to have small chain fatty acids. Mm -hmm. Small chain fatty acids are produced by a microbiome in our gut. What do you suppose it is that feeds them? Fiber. Yeah. Fiber. Fiber, fiber, fiber. How much fiber is there in chicken? Zero. How much fiber is there in meat? Zero. How much fiber is there in pork? Zero. How much fiber is there in dairy? Zero. How much Not zero. Fiber is there in, in sugar? Zero. How about how much fiber is there in olive oil? Zero. Yeah. Yeah. So and people's diets are predominantly made up of these refined foods where all the fiber has been taken out. Well, what is so terribly embarrassing for the profession has to be the fact that we have known for a hundred years that there are multiple cultures on the planet Earth where pet cardiovascular disease is virtually non-existent. Non-existent. What's happened to us learning from that? Finally, we're just beginning to scratch the surface. If we could, if this takes off, you know what 46% of Medicare is? Cardiology. And what is it? All those images and stents and bypasses and drugs that have nothing to do with the causation of the disease. So and we say, 46% of Medicare, and then away goes hypertension, away goes diabetes, right? Away goes stroke, strokes. And all I mean, the associated the only, disorders. The only reason that physicians 
make a making a money or make a living because people are ill or sick. So that's the question that I have for you, because here you are, you've been doing this work for, you know, several decades and, for, and I've met physicians who um, my daughter had broken her radial head off of um, her arm and she needed three surgeries to get it back in. And of course, our orthopedic surgeon, he was covered from head to toe in psoriasis, like just all over his body. And so, of course, I said to him, I said, hey, I help people reverse psoriasis and eczema and, and, you know, all of these skin conditions, including, you know, all these other diseases, heart disease, and it's a nonspecific therapy, right? It's really going back to food as medicine. And he's like, oh, you know what? I'm just a bone doctor. I don't know anything about that. And I was like, well, you know, why don't you take a look at some of the, you know, the uh, testimonials, case studies, everything. I showed him pictures of my clients covered from head to toe in psoriasis who were psoriasis free for years. And it didn't take much time to reverse that. And he's like, well, I don't know about that. You know, what's your background? And I was like, I don't have to be a doctor to teach you this, right? But so this is where we have this massive gap as well in our education system is that how are we graduating somebody with 10 years of medical school to become an orthopedic surgeon and meanwhile has zero training in nutrition. And I just have to say, he was drinking a Starbucks caramel macchiato, full dairy and eating this like probably a two day old muffin, um, you know, covered in oil, refined flour. And he's just, eating it, drinking it as we're having this conversation. So what can, can physicians actually do what you're doing, change their practice over and make money? You have to be optimistic because huge things can happen. I remember uh, when I was first going into medicine that uh, when all the CEOs of the tobacco companies were testifying, in front of Congress. And every one of them, you went that right down the road, they were at, each one of them was individually asked if smoking had anything to do with lung cancer. They all denied it, <laughs> it's classic. But it was, the 7,000 studies were so overwhelming mm -hmm. that in 1964, the Surgeon General had to announce that smoking was related to the cancer. Then suddenly it, in public buildings, it was outlawed. I mean, I can remember, flying in airplanes where they would say, would you like to sit in the non-smoking section? Can you imagine the thinking that, that the people in the back, their smoke never got to the front? But nevertheless, what happened since then, the public, 20 million people have stopped smoking. There's still 20 million who do smoke, but 20 million people have stopped smoking. That's huge, and they get it. When, when the public sees you can't walk into an airport with a cigarette. You can't walk into a public building with a cigarette. They get it, how unhealthy that is. And when, when seatbelts first came out, oh my God, I'd never wear a seatbelt, why? Well, God, if I drive into a canal, I'll drown. Well, there haven't been too many canal drowning, drownings, but you wouldn't think of getting into the passenger seat in a car without clicking in. So. I guess I look at that as uh, some optimism that this this is gonna, the click isn't quite there yet, but it's, uh, we just keep persisting and it will. Because almost every family or, or relatives in the family have something like cardiovascular disease, which is so common. 
Yeah, and it's true. And I like that you brought that up about the seatbelts, the smoking. Um, you know, we can apply this to many other examples as well, where, you know, we used to live in these unhealthy, like even just spraying with DDT, like trucks going down streets and spraying mothers, their children and their baked goods in their kitchens with DDT and thinking that was okay. And now nobody would think about doing that, even though we're still spraying our crops. But so I like that because I do go in and out of despair and hope. So despair and hope are my two areas where I'm like, okay, we can do this. We're going to see these changes in my lifetime to going like, this is, this is crazy. Like we won't see the changes. And so I do have to hold on to those examples, especially because I worked on the smoking cessation bylaws for our town when I used to work in government. I worked on air quality policies, water policies, you know, saying that we have to get people filtering their municipal tap water because it is not healthy for humans to drink that. So I know that we have these policies, but some of these policies have taken years and years and years to get through. And I guess maybe it is just about being patient, but is there a way that we can speed this up? Like, is there any way to change the medical school curriculum? Is there any way to get policies in place? I don't know. I've come up with all sorts of ideas, but like, what is your thought about that? Or is it just like walking the path, setting the example and slowly converting people? Yeah, you, you, you can't go in and, and twist arms in a medical school because what now, right now, the medical students time in terms of if you're a faculty member, the medical school students time is so precious that faculty are sparring and fighting and clawing to find time to present their material to the students. And, uh, and so it's, it's, and for, it's for somebody to come in and say, I want 10 hours of nutrition. Is it, where are you gonna get those 10 hours? You have to really clutch and fight and claw, as you say, and find a way that that can be done. Uh, but it's, that's, that's really, really uh, very challenging. But I remain optimistic. I yeah, remain optimistic. If you don't learn it in medical school, hopefully we'll find a way to get it in your postgraduate studies. Or maybe you'll, if nothing else, you'll learn it from your patients. True. They, yeah, and it's just, it's hard to, uh, ignore the reality of, of this because it's there's so much at stake yeah and the one piece about learning it from the patients that i think is such an easy thing that doctors can do it might just take a couple of extra minutes but i've seen this because i'm not a medical doctor i'm purely an educator on plant-based whole food as medicine um, and regenerative medicine so i teach and i teach physicians as well so you know i was on my path to go to medical school so i have my sciences background and i instead decided to open up these plant-based restaurants in case i didn't get into medical school and the restaurants just took off but i feel so grateful to have that science background because i can speak about all these things that you've been speaking about but the one thing that really frustrates me is that, and going back to how, how physicians can learn from their patients, and it's when my patient heals, or my client heals, it's the doctor's patient, my client, they've been diagnosed with a disease, heart disease, diabetes, infertility. They adopt a plant-based diet strictly, exactly as you've described, and they heal. And often the doctor, and I see the medical reports will say, oh, it had nothing to do with the dietary change. But what a physician can do is say, hey, what 
did you do? I'd like to just know. And they don't have to dive into it, but they could even just, I don't know, keep that in their own private journal. It doesn't have to go into the medical report. But just by asking that question, once a physician hears, you know, that 10 of their patients have healed, I don't know. I think they'll reach a tipping point where that physician might want to maybe read one of your books or attend one of your presentations. I don't know. There's, it's a simple thing that physicians, I think, need to need to start doing because otherwise they'll keep missing the fact that their doctors are, their patients are healing through a plant-based diet. And those anecdotal stories are great stories. No, yes, no. Maybe that's one thing we can teach in medical school. I don't know. Oh yeah, I, uh, their, their whole, uh, whole roster of, of options on how it can be done, but uh, the most provocative of all is, uh, you see, what we do in our seminar, those six hours, I get three hours for the science. Then Anne gets about an hour and a half for the practicality of acquiring plant-based nutrition, how to acquire plant-based uh, uh, items, and at the same time, prepare them. And then we always finish up, we have a, a several local or regional participants who had a successful story. And these uh, folks happen to be so articulate. Uh, and it's, it's their story is so gripping because what has happened is the, the persons who are participating in the seminar, they say, okay, I get the science, I get the practicality of getting the food, but how do I know what's going to work? Bingo! Mm -hmm. In comes the, the testimonial and it, uh, really wraps it up. Yeah, and those testimonials are very powerful on all levels because at the end of the day, we have to show that this is a reality. We have to show it's doable in our busy everyday life, that we can incorporate these lifestyle changes, eating a different type of breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, and so on. So these testimonials are important. And I know for a lot of physicians who are listening, and I've had them comment to me before to say, well, that's just anecdotal evidence. But eventually when you get enough anecdotal evidence, it becomes something that we should look at and design studies around, you know, the results that they got. And the thing is, we actually have those studies. You've done the studies. There are, you know, hundreds of studies that people can access to see that, yes, you know, switching to a plant-based diet works, cutting out these refined foods, getting more fiber um, works, you know. Um, and so, those, I think we cannot never underestimate those testimonials for sure. And I encourage, you know, patients and, and clients who have healed to share their stories as well online, because when they do that, it allows other people to access, you know, these beautiful stories of healing. And so, uh, yeah, that's another thing that I think doctors absolutely need to do as well is to, if they hear of a case of somebody, you know, ask a few questions and ask the patient to share their their testimonials with others because I, that's what I found has really made an impact on on advancing this movement as well is those beautiful stories that are out there. So I have to go back to one particular question because I know in the plant-based world and in the vegan world and whatever you know label we want to give this type of eating that um, people do get in an uproar when we say no nuts because we don't have nuts on our program as well. So can you just explain that to people, why they want to minimize or eliminate the nuts out of their diet? Well, I, uh, if, you, if you go to page 69 of my book, uh, for patients who do not have heart disease, I, I do not 
say they cannot have nuts. Uh, but for patients who have heart disease, uh, the reason I'm a little bit of an outlier here is, uh, as I told you before, I hate failure. Now, a couple things about nuts. One, that nuts are loaded with saturated fat. Loaded. And if, if I were to say it was okay to have three walnut halves on your cereal, that's not what people would hear. They'd say, Estelson said nuts were okay. That's not what I said. For patients with heart disease, I don't want them to have nuts. Why? Because not only do our nuts filled with saturated fat, but if, if you say that you're gonna, <laughs> you open the green light on nuts, they're gonna be in the glove compartment. They're going to be in the kitchen, the bathroom, the bedroom, the hallway, the living room. They're that addicting. And then we've suddenly got all that extra saturated fat, which is not going to be uh, anything except harmful. Now, the other thing that is interesting is there are a lot of studies out there that are very protective of nuts. And if you look carefully, who is the funding source? of that article that was so good. It's always the nut companies. So there's a huge conflict there. And you always have to be suspect when that situation arises. And the other thing is this, I have yet to see a study, a single study of patients with documented significant triple vessel coronary artery disease, eat nuts or peanut butter or cashew sauce and reverse their disease. Yeah, I mean, I see it with our program when our clients, um, even if they have diabetes as well, um, heart disease, there's a lot. I mean, the fact is that the endothelial lining of our blood vessels, it, it's all through our body. It's our, you know, our eyes, our brain, our, you know, heart, uh, you know, really it's throughout everywhere. And so, you know, when people think like, oh, well, I'm going to eat nuts because it's good for my brain, or I'm going to eat nuts because it's good for whatever else. Um, in our program, we just don't have it. And we see people heal really well. We see them actually heal a lot slower if they don't want to eliminate nuts. And I agree with you that people get carried away. They all of a sudden are like nuts for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because they're worried about protein, right? They're adding it for the protein. And maybe one thing you can speak about because people think they're adding it for the, for the fats as well. Like, will somebody become deficient in their fats by eliminating the nuts? Deficient in their protein by eliminating the nuts. Well, uh, we don't we don't see that. We just <laughs> there is protein in all the grains. There is protein in all the beans and legumes. There's protein in vegetables. There's protein in potatoes. I don't know people who ever got protein deficient with this, and you progressively you notice that professional athletes are transitioning to whole food plant-based nutrition. Why? Because they have greater stamina and a much quicker recovery time. And if you go to again, see the movie, The Game Changers, that'll, that'll finish you off for meat once and for all. Yep. When you, what you get with meat is disease. Do you know what Walter Willett, who was chairman of public health at Harvard Medical School, when asked what is the ideal amount of red meat to eat? And he said, zero 
Wow. And I mean, and that the evidence is there. The you know, evidence-based medicine has shown that over and over again as well, but people still want to hang on to their steaks because of the protein. And to me, it seems that's the biggest issue for so many people. Uh, okay, so everyone, we just had a tech glitch, but... Uh, but I, I think I, one of the things I wanted to reemphasize, because yeah. I, I think I emphasized it before we got cut out, and uh, that is, uh, I'd like your audience to take away two words. Perfect the endothelial system and nitric oxide. The endothelial cells, the delicate innermost lining of the arteries that produce nitric oxide. And nitric oxide, again, is the magic gas that protects us from having blockages and plaque, as well as a whole host of other wonderful functions. So that's the key. Endothelial cells and nitric oxide as far as heart disease is concerned. That is two really, those are two very important words. And we are going to be sure to emphasize that. I mean, in all of our future recordings as well, just to keep people coming back to that. So we are going to summarize this whole podcast into Word document form, PDF form, because I think we just have to simplify everything, give them the simple steps. Also have all the links to your books. So what, uh, what other information do you want to give people so that you know, they could learn more directly from you? What is the best way to do that? Well, I, I think probably it would be, <clears throat> can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly. Uh, would probably go to the uh, go to the website because that's evolving, and we try to keep pretty much up to date. And I think there will be a, a host of things you can see. You can see a bunch of patient testimonials or where they have shared their story. Uh, you'll see the scientific articles that I have written, uh, and I think that really it uh, will give some background and data that is uh, uh, foundational for their understanding of, of what we want to have go forward. I would have just one uh, uh, little bit of closing remark, if I may. And that is, that uh, I, I think that the reason that now here I am somewhat 21 years after I retired from surgery, I find myself as more passionate than ever about medicine. And that is because truly, I really see uh, not too far down the road, a seismic revolution in health. And the seismic revolution in health is never going to come about from the invention of another pill, another drug, another procedure, another stent, another bypass operation or operation. But the seismic revolution in health will come about when we in the profession have the will and the grit and the determination to share with the public what is the lifestyle, and most specifically, what is the nutritional literacy that will empower them as the locus of control to halt to, and, and absolutely annihilate chronic illness? Thank you, Nicolette. Dr. Caldwell B. Eselston Jr., you are a blessing in this world on all levels. Uh, we're going to provide all the links in our show notes and make sure that everybody has access to your information from now and for decades to come. Um, you are a legend in so many ways. And so I want to just thank you for the work that you do. And I want to end with one thing. 
As everybody knows, I'm going to be riding and cycling across Canada fully on a plant-based whole food diet. I want your blessing that I can do this fully and I'll come out healthy on the other end just to show people that it's possible. You'll do it. Awesome. Plant-based all the way can fuel me for 7,120 kilometers. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye for now. So I hope that you listened really carefully to everything that Dr. Eselston shared with you because everything he says, if you just put it into practice starting today, don't wait till tomorrow, don't wait till next week, don't wait till next month, literally put into practice what he is saying and you will be able to reverse your diseases. You will be able to live a life of optimal energy, optimal health, free of pain, free of chronic disease so that you can realize, you can realize the, the potential that is within you right now. Your DNA knows that you are supposed to be a vibrant, energetic, healthy individual. Unfortunately, the food choices that you're making today, the lifestyle choices that you're making today is preventing that from happening. So you need to get out of your own way. And the way to do that is to just experiment with your body, use it as a living laboratory. We're talking about using fruits and vegetables and grains and legumes and pulses here, people. We're not talking about using medications which all of them, all of them have a side effect. And one of those side effects is often pain and death. So you are comparing medications to food. So use your body as a living laboratory and just implement what Dr. Caldwell B. Ezelstein Jr. has said in our podcast. And I, though I'm not allowed to say I can guarantee it, I can attest that if you put that into practice for a minimum of three months, you are going to be a different human being where your body will feel light and free. You will lose weight if you have weight to gain. You will gain weight if you have, um, sorry, you will lose weight if you have weight to lose. If you are overweight, you will gain weight if you are underweight and don't know how to keep weight on your body because your disease is ravaging your body. You will be free of that chronic pain. You will have energy. You will have um, ultimate health. And isn't that what we all want? Because when we have ultimate health, we can go out there and actually fulfill the dreams that we have set for ourselves, but we've just been suppressing because we don't know how we're going to achieve them in these diseased bodies. So once you're free of the pain, once you're free of the disease, once you have the energy, you can go out there and launch that business that you've always wanted to. You can go out there and find the man or woman or human of your dreams, no matter what gender. You can go out there and quit the job that you hate and actually go after the job of your dreams. You can go out there and just play with your kids. Who wouldn't want that? So thanks everyone for being here today. Um, it has been such a pleasure. Please, you know what to do. Share this podcast with everybody and stay tuned for next episode on the Eat Real to Heal show. Bye for now.